Hello and welcome back to the podcast as we ring in 2020. I'm Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and today we are happy to bring you part two of our coverage of the 2019 November-December print issue of the journal. We are excited to bring you four highlighted articles, including two conversations with authors. So with no further ado, I'll hand things over to my co-host, Josh Holt, for the first article and interview. This is Josh Holt coming to you today from the University of Iowa, and as all of you that are college football fans would know, the Stead Family Children's Hospital, home of the WAVE. And where we apparently fundraise, very successfully I might add, with signs requesting for beer money on national TV. Well, I'm excited to be joined on the program today by two pediatric orthopedists as we discuss their manuscripts. First, we'll have a closer look at the study performed by Drs. Ganley and Flynn looking at pediatric ACL reconstruction and return to the OR. In this study, the authors performed a retrospective review of 419 patients who underwent primary ACL reconstruction from 2013 through 2015. They sought out to better understand the all-cause return to the OR after ACL reconstruction, rather than just describing the cases of failed ACL reconstruction requiring revision, which has typically been the focus of previous studies. The median age in their study was 15 years, and 20% of patients had physeal-sparing ACL reconstruction. 64% of patients underwent a meniscal procedure, either repair or resection, at the time of ACL reconstruction. Results of their study showed that by three years after primary ACL reconstruction, 16.5% of patients required return to the OR, although graft failure was the primary cause, representing 10.3% of all patients. This accounted for less than half of the total cases requiring return to the OR and was lower than previously published rates of retear in the pediatric patients. They found slightly lower rates of contralateral ACL tear than previous reports. Interestingly, their results showed that patients who had a concomitant meniscus procedure had lower rates of return to the OR than those who did not have a meniscus procedure. This was most notable at the three-year mark where rates of return to the OR were nearly twice as high in patients who did not have a meniscal procedure performed during primary ACL reconstruction. Additionally, almost half of the ACL re-tears occurred before the patients had been cleared to return to full activities. This led the authors to attribute the high complication rate, with nearly one in six patients requiring return to the OR by three years, to pediatric patients' high activity levels and difficulties with adherence to post-operative restrictions. So it's my uh, great pleasure to welcome to the program Dr. Ted Ganley from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Dr. Ganley, thank you uh, so much for taking the time to join us this afternoon. Thank you. So very interesting article. I think it certainly highlights some important factors looking specifically at pediatric ACL reconstruction. In the manuscript, you point out that almost half of the re-tears occurred before the patient's clearance to return to full activity. And that can certainly be a little bit frustrating for a surgeon who wants the best outcomes for their patients. So has this realization resulted in any changes in your post-op or return to sport protocol or do you counsel patients more aggressively against returning to sport too quickly? So yeah, that's a great question. I uh, basically have changed my discussions for patients uh, preoperatively and postoperatively, and we've addressed some issues with the post-op rehabilitation uh, program based upon those findings. So the first thing I do is tell patients before surgery that keep in mind um, 41% of our patients um, that got any need for a return to operating room uh, we're not following precisely our ACL post-op protocol. So keep in mind um, the importance of that. So that's even before they have their knee addressed. And then afterward, we've made uh, a few additions. Our 
our post-op rehabilitation program uh, gives patients every month, every week, every day what to expect. Um, but we actually changed some of the wording um, to be more geared toward the uh, adolescent uh, themselves. And then the second component of that is uh, we mandated certain requirements that, that uh, at three months, six months, nine months, they must get a written clearance from um, the attending surgeon before they get back to certain activities. Um, so there's no level of interpretation from um, kids, parents, or coaches. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's to me, that's the benefit of studies like this, to really open some eyes and shed some light and maybe not change the surgery that you do or the technique that's involved with surgery, but gives you some idea and thought to try to address some of the protocols afterwards and be able to kind of talk frankly with patients that we have data that supports that kids are getting back to stuff too quickly. So that's great to see that you guys have made some changes at your institution because of it. On that topic, on the topic of post-op rehab and return to sports, do you think that we have the right protocols in place? Is this a big enough problem that we need to do a study, a randomized study, to try and assess the different protocols in a pediatric-specific population? I do think that there are a certain number of patients that just simply do not comply with the protocols that have been established. Um, But we have developed uh, pediatric-based programs um, that are specifically designed for kids, um, uh, our rule of thumb is one of uh, 90%. So, so we make patients um, get back 90% of their strength. Uh, they must pass 90% of their functional testing, neuromuscular proprioceptive balance training, and they must return uh, no sooner than nine months from the time of injury. For some of the very much younger uh, children, that can be, we counsel them to say it could be between 9 and 12 months, and they might expect closer to 12 months because it tends to take a longer period of time for these pre-adolescents to to gain the muscle mass uh, that the older uh, kids can get. So we believe that uh, by fine-tuning our existing pediatric uh, protocols, we're, we're addressing these things. Certainly, there's always room for further study, always room for for more trials, and we are doing collaborative work um, uh, with uh, different uh, pediatric hospitals throughout the country, and we have a prospective uh, cohort uh, in place. And we have a number of founders uh, of that, and one of the most prominent is uh, my buddy Min Coker in uh, Boston. Uh, So we have a a Pluto group, Pediatric ACL Understanding Treatment Options, Um, and uh, and that's been a... uh, a very uh, enjoyable process to to gather this important information. Yeah, I think that nine to twelve month period for for pediatric patients is certainly important. I know some of the previous literature, even on kids, has kind of used a six month as the early return um, to sport. But I think certainly setting up an expectation of delay beyond that, up to that nine to twelve month window, can certainly um, help if we can get patients to comply. Obviously. Yeah, and it, and it takes a. Uh, uh, a collective effort, uh, not just the uh, uh, patients, uh, their their parents, relatives, uh, the physical therapists, the physicians, the athletic trainers, the physicians assistants. So it's a, it's most definitely a team approach. I'll sometimes say to kids, it's like your surgery is like the helicopter ride to base camp, and then you're trekking up to the top of that mountain. So your journey starts after the surgery. That's your rehabilitation. Your your rehabilitation journey starts after uh, the surgery, and. Uh, and your parents and myself and others are like the Sherpas helping you up the mountain, but you're actually making that physical climb yourself. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. Thank you. Thank you for bringing up that need for the team approach for so many things we do in, in orthopedics in general, too. Um, changing gears a little bit, you know, I know that Fisial sparing versus transficial techniques are something we could do a whole podcast on in itself, and we certainly don't have time to get into all the specifics. But I'm curious of kind of what are your general guidelines when considering transficial versus fisial sparing techniques? Sure. Um, I, I would say, um, in general, uh, what I describe as transficial is I, I talk about those as growth plate respecting ACL surgeries. So patients um, that have just a few years of growth remaining, we use a soft tissue graft only at the level of the growth plate. So you can you can have a drilling that's across the physis, uh, but we will use any form of soft tissue graft that is stronger than your native ACL, and that allows those young athletes to continue to grow appropriately. Um, if they have many years of growth remaining, uh, then we address fysial sparing techniques. And then the ways uh, that we uh, describe fysial sparing is, is another description of that would be growth plate avoiding. Um, so the femoral tunnel goes below, parallel and below the distal femoral physis, and it goes uh, above at the anterior aspect of tibia, above the proximal tibial physis. Um, and when I say many years of growth remaining, there's a number of different ways uh, that you can uh, address that. It can be via not just chronologic age, but bone age, um, and also um, uh, self-tanner staging, um, and then also uh, height relative to parents. Um, there's a number of different uh, ways to address growth remaining. Uh, one uh, general rule of thumb is that we know patients, certainly chronologic age, but if we get their bone age, Patients with a uh, roughly um, a bone age of 13 in females and 14 in males is when um, historically our group um, throughout the past few decades have been doing transficial growth plate respecting ACL procedures. And then those that have a bone age that's younger than that uh, in the pre-adolescence uh, with sometimes um, 6, 12 or more inches of growth remaining uh, where they have those growth plate avoiding procedures. Even an in-between version of that in that uh, patients that have a wide open femoral growth plate and they're closing on the tibial side can get a hybrid ACL. So it's growth plate avoiding on the femoral side and growth plate respecting or soft tissue only across the physis on the tibial side. So that's kind of an in-between version of that. Certainly, certainly. And then finally, you know, you talk with um, in, your, in your manuscript about the outcomes when comparing patients with concomitant meniscal procedures and those patients who did not have any meniscal procedure. Um, it's an intriguing result that you guys found. I think you know one of the the only one that I know that's kind of published that result, certainly in pediatric literature. And in the manuscript, you mentioned the idea of synergism and and healing of an ACL graft and meniscus as a possible explanation. I'm interested to kind of dive a little deeper into your thoughts as to other potential reasons why the patients who have a meniscus procedure at the time of their primary ACL reconstruction might do better, and it will certainly require less return to the operating room. Well, certainly, I, I think it would be a, um, well established, interestingly, in the adult uh, and the pediatric literature that if you have a meniscus repair and at the same time you have an ACL surgery, the meniscus repairs do better than if it was an isolated meniscus repair. So, um, and it's felt to be that the uh, tunnels that are required uh, for drilling for an ACL create a uh, bleeding healing response. Um, and in response to that, if we do an isolated meniscus, 
there are times when we'll uh, do a little drilling of the intercomer notch to create a little more of uh, bone marrow blood supply to help the, enhance that meniscal healing. Um, and I think the interesting point that you make is that we found that patients that had um, an ACL reconstruction plus a meniscus tear had less return to the operating room. We would say that we're not uh, completely sure um, that it's because they have an enhanced uh, ACL outcome. It could be um, that because of these patients having a greater number of knee injuries, um, ACL plus meniscus tears, that we're counseling them about the inherent sports that they're playing, the high-impact and collision sports. So we will counsel patients uh, about the number of injuries that they've had and then the sports that they're in. So it could be that some of these patients are self-selecting out of some of the higher-impact and collision sports and are back into more straight-line sports. We did not collect that data. Um, I would say, however, that our meniscus repair patients uh, and those ACLs that did not have a meniscus repair have an almost identical rehab protocol. In the first month, patients with a meniscus repair get three extra weeks of crutches, um, but after that time, for the next eight months, the protocol is identical. So I don't think it's due um, to the rehab uh, protocol, but it could be due to some other factors, including uh, self-selection or activity uh, restriction on the behalf of the patients and their families. Yeah, very interesting. It's uh, it's certainly something that requires a little more investigation and a little a little closer look into. But um, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about the study. I think, like I mentioned before, this really provides more information for us to provide with patients and families and counseling them both pre and post op, and really trying to maximize outcomes after ACL uh, reconstruction. So, Dr. Ganley, really appreciate your time and joining us today. Thanks so much, Josh. My privilege. Thank you, Josh, and thank you, Dr. Ganley, for joining us. Next, we'll turn things over to Julia to discuss two recent articles, one on atypical skiffies and another on using the distal femoral physis to determine skeletal maturity. Hi, everyone. This is your co-host, Julia Sanders, from Children's Hospital Colorado, and I'm going to share with you some highlights from the article entitled Clinical and Radiographic Characteristics of Atypical Slipped Capital Femoral Epiphysis by Dr. Shim and colleagues from the Samsung Medical Center in Seoul, Korea. The authors retrospectively reviewed patients with slipped capital femoral epiphyses managed operatively over an 11-year period. They categorized the skiffies into either idiopathic or atypical, with the atypical being associated with radiation therapy, chemotherapy, renal failure, or other endocrine disorders. Variables including sex, age, weight, height, laterality, and slip angle were recorded, as well as the presence of genuvalgum. 31 children with 38 idiopathic slip capital femoral epiphyses and 22 children with 29 atypical slips were included. Initial skiffy occurred at an average age of 10.9 years, with average duration of symptoms being 14.1 weeks. The average Southwick slip angle was 23.3 degrees. The majority were mild and moderate with only 10 severe skiffies, and only 8 of 66 were classified as unstable. Atypical skiffies were significantly younger, shorter, weighed less, and had lower BMI than those with idiopathic slips. Of the atypical slips, four patients had endocrine disorders, nine had previous total body or pelvic radiation therapy, and 16 had undergone chemotherapy. This group had significantly more valgus slips and a higher likelihood of developing genuvalgum than their idiopathic counterparts. This paper highlights that hip pain in pediatric cancer survivors should be considered a potential sign of skiffy, 
and that these patients may present differently than the more typical SCIFI, including other alignment concerns such as genuvalgum. The authors point out that as survival rates of pediatric malignancies improve, atypical slipped capital femoral epiphysis may become more prevalent, and this is an entity that all pediatric orthopedic surgeons should be aware of. Next, we'll move to another section of this month's journal and discuss the paper entitled Evaluation of Skeletal Maturity Using the Distal Femoral Physeal Central Peak is Not Significantly Affected by Radiographic Projection by Dr. Liu and colleagues out of Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. To provide a bit of background, the authors previously published a quantitative method of radiologic assessment of skeletal maturity using topographical anatomy of the distal femur in 2018. The distal femoral physis has three major undulations, the central peak, the lateral ridge, and the medial peak. This study focused on central peak value, or CPV, which is calculated by dividing the measurement of the physeal line by the central peak height on a radiograph of the knee. This value increases with increasing age and has been shown to provide more accurate predictions of 90th percent of final height and thus peak height velocity in growing adolescents when combined with chronologic age and sex as compared with values using Gerlich and Pyle. The goal was to provide a quick and easily reproducible method of estimating skeletal maturity, especially for patients with leg length discrepancy who may not have routine films of the hand or spine performed. In the most recent study, the authors sought to compare the measurement reliability of the CPV method in AP radiographs of the knee versus standing hip-to-ankle leg length radiographs. They searched a clinical database for all standard knee films and standing hip-to-ankle films in female patients age 7 to 16 and male patients age 7 to 18. After measuring the CPV as previously described, they calculated the level of agreement between observers and found an excellent intraclass correlation coefficient value of 0.873. The CPV values were not significantly different in either male or female patients. CPV values were, however, noted to be significantly higher in male patients than female patients on both radiograph types, indicating that separate scales should be used for boys and girls. These results expand the potential of this quantitative method for use in estimating skeletal maturity for patients with leg length discrepancies and other conditions without the need for additional radiographs. I would encourage all of our listeners to check out the print version of this journal to see some visuals which really demonstrate the utility of this method. Great job, as always. Well, it's Josh again. We would now like to talk about the study out of the Shriners Hospital in Chicago entitled, A Long-Term Follow-Up of Young Adults with Idiopathic Clubfoot. Does Foot Morphology Relate to Pain? We will be joined shortly by the senior author, Dr. Smith. In this study, Dr. Smith and his team set out to evaluate the relationship between foot morphology and pain in young adults treated as infants with idiopathic clubfoot and compared the pedobarographic pain, and morphology outcomes among patients treated with extensive posterior medial surgical release compared with those treated with the Ponsetti method. They also compared these groups with typically developing feet. In this case, control study of individuals treated for idiopathic clubfoot at two different institutions between 1983 and 1987, 24 patients totaling 37 feet had a comprehensive surgical release using a Cincinnati incision after failed serial casting. 18 patients, totaling 28 feet, were treated with Ponsetti method serial casting, and 48 patients with typically developing feet served as controls. Outcomes were assessed using the International Clubfoot Study Group Morphology Scoring System, Dynamic Pedobarographic Studies, and Foot Function Index Surveys. 
The authors found that foot morphology scores were significantly correlated with pain scores in both treatment groups. More deformed feet exhibited greater reports of pain. The surgical release group exhibited greater sub-arc angle and arc indices than the Ponsetti group, demonstrating significantly flatter feet in the surgical release group. Feet after surgical release showed increased center of pressure progression towards the hind foot during gait. The difference in foot function index pain subgroup scores was not significantly different between groups. The need for further operative treatment was high in both groups, with the surgical release group requiring an average of two additional soft tissue and or bony procedures at an average of six years, and just over half of the patients in the Ponsetti group requiring tibialis anterior tendon transfer at an average age of 3.3 years. Let's now welcome Dr. Peter Smith from the Shriners Hospital in Chicago to the program. Thanks for having me. A very interesting article that you guys put forward, kind of following up your, your previous article on this cohort, looking at foot morphology and how it relates to pain. Curious to, to get your thoughts. You know, this cohort, few of the patients had posterior joint releases performed after the Ponsetti method of serial casting, and they were included in that kind of Ponsetti cohort from your original group. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that decision to include them with the, the Ponsetti patients versus the surgical treated patients. That's a great question. You have to consider that these patients for Ponsetti were actually Ponsetti patients or patients at Iowa. So we thought that reflected the Ponsetti method. Now, given it was at that time, which was between the period of 1983 and 1987, they actually traveled to our institution and had a complete evaluation. I thought that we should include that in the Ponsetti method because that is the Ponsetti method at, at that time, and, and it does include the secondary procedures. Many of us shoot, of course, for less of a joint releases, other secondary procedures in our Ponsetti patients, but that reflects the state of the art at that time. So I thought it should be included. Very interesting. And one of the things you comment on is your the slightly higher rates of tibialis anterior tendon transfers in this cohort of 55% of the feet um, and correlate that with some other studies that have shown slightly lower rates. Do you have a, a goal or an expected rate of tibialis anterior tendon transfers in your current practice? Oh, yeah. In our current practice, and I think this has been outlined pretty well by Dr. Morquende from your institution, that the rate of tendon transfers is lower than that historical because of the tendency now to sort of uh, overcorrect the foot, if you will, to hyperabduct it during the Ponsetti treatment and trying to hold that position better uh, and perhaps get better correction. Perfect. And I, I also find it interesting, you know, this article isn't looking so much at the global outcome of the feet. That was something published previously by your group from the same cohort, but really looking at foot morphology and how it relates to pain. And although there was no statistically significant difference between the Ponsetti cohort and the surgical cohort in the foot function index pain subscale, the difference was nearly reaching significance when you look at the minimal clinically important difference, the MCID. You guys published um, a difference of 27 versus 17 between the two cohorts with the MCID being 12. So quite nearly meeting the MCID, although not statistically significant. Do you have a general sense or kind of a general take home that there was a difference in the pain between these groups or that we're, we're still a little bit reaching for that statistically significant difference? 
Yeah, I, I was surprised that it didn't show a statistical difference. Uh, we had shown in an earlier article uh, with the same group significant differences in uh, SF36, specifically in the pain portion of that, and we did not find that significance in this. Obviously, the FFI is a different index, and you know the best way I could explain the data was just to list all the results. So on table one of the paper, we just list all the results. If you look at that, many of the Ponsetti patients were doing well, and then a few of them, about 10 of them or so, or, or maybe eight of them, were having a significant pain that showed up on the FFI index. So it was the way the data presented. There's probably a greater range, my thinking is, within that Ponsetti group between patients that are you know, a lot of patients that are doing very well, and then some that are having pain as adults. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see the, you know, as you mentioned, there's five or seven patients here with FFI pain scores over 40, and then just five over 60. That It'd be interesting to know if where those five who actually had the posterior joint releases performed, where those five fall into yeah. this um, table in table one, as you mentioned. Yeah, that would be good to look at. That would go along with our, you know, our current state of thinking is that the more you release the joints and make them incongruous, the more arthritis they're going to get uh, later on, which is, you know, basically, I think the overall point of, of all these papers is to uh, try to preserve as much of the uh, joint motion as you can. But this is the way it, it's sorted out. And I think, you know, we'll just have to keep looking closely at our groups of Ponsetti kids as they grow up and see if we can improve on that. Yeah, on, on that topic, actually, you know, this study does a great job at trying to correlate pain with foot morphology and is able to really localize and identify a couple specific differences between the three cohorts on your dynamic pedobarography. I'm curious to know your thoughts. Um, at the end of the manuscript, you do mention that really the steps and the goals moving forward should be to improve ankle power and range of motion and to maintain a functional arc of the foot. Whereas Ponsetti himself, and as you guys quote in your paper, you know, his real goals presented for the Ponsetti method were to get a plantar grade foot that was painless and that tolerates normal shoe wear which today's patients may be more demanding and may have higher expectations for their outcomes. And as you guys have worked through this and continue to work forward, are there things that you're doing or goals that you're putting forward to try and get those better outcomes and maybe reach a higher functional outcome and decrease pain? Yeah, that's right. That's why we have to look at adults. We know that if we get the foot plantar grade as children and adolescents, no matter what technique we use, we're going to get what we would think is a great result because the children are running around playing sports, wearing regular shoes. It's only when they become adults that these other factors become so important, subtalar motion and the push-off power and uh, arthritis and pain. Those you don't see until they become uh, adults, but they're very important for function. So uh, if we just want to look at that Ponsetti group, yeah, we could. We can still improve range of motion. For example, ankle dorsiflexion is still pretty low in that group, and power of the ankle is less. Arch index and foot morphology are closer to a normal situation, but they're still a little bit different, a little bit what they call higher arch angle or flatter foot uh, overall. Probably the biggest thing with that is, well, the ankle dorsiflexion range of motion and the ankle push-off power, the, the power of the gastric soleus, probably are the things we have to try to improve with our uh, method. And how we do that, I don't know. Probably limit the number of tendo Achilles lengthenings. 
uh, you know, some of those children in, in this group had multiple tendo-Achilles lengthenings. Tried to do that with better correction initially and maintenance of the correction with the bracing. Very good. Well, Dr. Smith, I really appreciate you taking some time this morning to join us on the program and uh, look forward to seeing you, your team and your work moving forward to really maximize the outcomes for these patients who are dealt this card with, of life with clubfoot. Well, that's it for today, and that is it for this year. Thank you to all of our listeners, and a very special thank you to all of the guests we've had on the podcast during 2019. Have a very happy and safe new year. 